Hi there, and welcome to Inside Intercom. I'm Liam Geraghty. Our guest today is Michelle Hansen, co-founder of Geocodio, a SaaS product that provides geocoding and data matching for addresses. Michelle is also the author of Deploy Empathy, a practical guide to interviewing customers, which is what today's episode is all about. Michelle has some great insights into why customer interviews are super important, how to navigate one of the most challenging areas, recruiting participants, and once you have the people to talk to, how you actually talk to them. So without further ado, let's head over to studio to meet Michelle Hansen. Michelle, thank you so much for joining us and you're very welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So just to start off, could you give us a little bit of a background on yourself and your career so far? Yes. So I am the co-founder of Geocodio, which is a small software company. My husband and I started that company eight and a half years ago. And my career, though, I I started out uh, as a project manager at a web development agency, transitioned into being a product manager. And during all of that time, was actually running Geocodio on the side. So have been running it full time for five years now, actually. Yeah. Wow. Five years now. Yeah. And I know we're going to talk about your book today, but Geocodio is so cool. Could you tell us just a little bit about, you know, what it does? Yes. So the core of what we do is geocoding, which is turning addresses into coordinates and coordinates into addresses. And we do this because computers do not understand an address. They only understand the coordinates. So if you want to, for example, make a map or you're typing directions into a map app, what's happening on the background is that that address is getting converted into the coordinates and then the distance or the route is being calculated between them. And where we focus in that market is specifically on the U.S. and Canada and data matching needs. So a lot of people need coordinates for other things besides making maps, such as matching to census data, political districts, time zones, all of those things hinge on having the coordinates. And Mm. so that's really where we've focused in the market. I love it. It's such a great idea. So your book that I mentioned, Deploy Empathy, a Practical Guide to Interviewing Customers, Why did you decide to write it and where did the idea come from? Yeah, so when I was a product manager, I was introduced to the wonderful world of customer research and jobs to be done. And it was a revelation for me and Mm. really changed how I did my work. And instead of sort of looking at all of our analytics and data and trying to make an educated guess on what would move the needle and what features we should work on and how we should change them based on looking at all of those numbers... I learned really that, you know, a spreadsheet will tell you what is happening, but it will never tell you why. And only people can tell you that. And it seemed very strange at first to be like, what do you mean I should just go talk to someone? Like, they'll (laughs) tell me what's going on? Sure, right. (laughs) And then I, I learned a structured way to do that using frameworks, using data to inform who you should be talking to, how you should process that information you're getting to make it useful to you. And so that was a revelation for me as a product manager. Of course, when I went full-time on Geocodio, I then had the opportunity to do a lot more of that research on our customers myself and also started investing in other companies, advising other small software companies, and became known as someone to go to when people had questions about doing customer research, understanding their customers, things like that. But I found I didn't really have one 
guide. I felt like I could send mm. people, like I was kind of sending them a whole bunch of different books and kind of being like, okay, read <laughs> this chapter here, listen to this podcast. Now there's these three blog posts and like, <laughs> and it was just kind of a jumbled mess. And there's a lot of good resources on customer research, on understanding customers, on turning that into strategy and implementation and whatnot. But I felt like, especially for small software company founders, was really kind of the, the community I'm coming out of. There wasn't just one book I could just hand someone and they could just run with it. Yeah. And so I started writing this myself as a newsletter and people really wanted it to be a book. And so it became a book. I love the title as well. Yeah, I thought it was kind of, well, I love puns. So um, (laughs) unabashedly. And, you know, it sort of came to me because it was sort of a wink to developers. So it's kind of the community I'm coming out of is developers who have pivoted to running their own companies, kind of like us, started it on the side and and then running it. And so it was sort of a wink to them that this was Mm. something for them too, because there are a lot of great books on customer research. Many of them are written for UX people or they're written for people from a product background, not developers or marketers or analysts or people who are not coming at this with any sort of background in customer research, never mind even talking to people. I think that was a big challenge that I learned people have is that they're, they're especially developers who become founders, even the idea of doing sales or, or interviewing a customer, that is a huge leap for them because in many large companies, the developers are actively kept away from the customers. And so, <laughs> yeah, so that was an, another challenge yeah. to make sure was addressed as well. No, I love it. So I, I suppose the keyword here in the title is empathy. And like, how do you define empathy? And is it a learnable skill? Yes, it is absolutely a learnable skill. And it's something that you can also learn at any time in your life. I think actually a lot of people are not taught empathy fr- mm. from childhood unless their parents were particularly focused on empathy. And empathy basically, and, and I borrow uh, Brene Brown's definition, is you know sort of entering into the shoes of another person and recognizing that their perspective makes sense from their perspective which sounds repetitive. But Mm -hmm. what you're really saying is that someone else is making decisions in their life or in their work that are sensical based on the set of conditions that they are under. You might make a different decision. You might think that their decision does not make sense, but that's not the point. It's the whole point is to sort of build the map of their head and what are all of the different constraints and incentives and challenges that they're facing And in the process of showing them that their decisions and their actions make sense, they will tell you that story. And then you can use that map that you have built to build a better product for them, market to them better, sell to them better, make (laughs) things that are useful for them because everyone has a different perspective on a process. And whether this is things we're doing in our lives or boring everyday business things like paying an invoice. Every person has a different process. Every company has a different process. And only by acknowledging, okay, this process you're telling me about that your company does sounds incredibly, you know, you might think to yourself, it sounds incredibly convoluted and complicated and really should be cut down. Mm-hmm. You might think that, but if you don't step back and say, okay, this process, A, it exists for a reason. And B, this person can't really do anything about that. But maybe I, I, you know, I have some software here that's going to cut six hours out of their process, but they're not using my product. Why is that? Okay, can we understand the constraints that they're under, the incentives they're under, and say that this makes sense from their perspective, what they're doing? And then you can build a product and a business 
that fits into what they are trying to do. And so it's how do you really sort of get into their head and understand their process? So you've kind of answered it there, but I was going to ask you, you know, why is doing customer interviews like super important? And I mean, it's one of those questions where you feel like it's an obvious like answer, but actually, you know, for a lot of businesses don't, you know, understand why it's so super important. Customer research and customer interviews are a raw material that you can use across your business from product to marketing to sales to pricing strategy to understanding your competitive advantages and your overall strategic approach. It gives you that raw material that you can use in so many different places across the company. It's also incredibly motivating for people to understand, okay, this is why we're helping people and here's how we can help them better. It's amazing how it not only helps people align on strategy, but really brings teams together and makes them feel like they are connected to what the company is doing. And then when you're in Scrum, for example, and you're saying, okay, we, we need to build this feature that solves this problem. Instead of having to have a billion meetings talking about what that problem is and why people are experiencing it and how it's important in the number, all those kinds of things. Sure, you have all of those things. But then you can say, oh, yeah, because everybody was just in that call we were in last week or they saw the clips we posted on Slack from that interview where the person was talking about exactly this problem and how it impacts them. There's a line in your book that I love. Your time is too valuable to spend it creating things that people don't want, which I, I think really like sums up all of this. Yeah, I, I think it's important to note to people that it might feel like research is something that will take up a lot of time and it may not be clear exactly how you are going to use it next. But that is the beauty of it because you can use it in so many different places and it's a resource you can come back to time and time again. And people's time is too valuable to spend it building something that people don't want or they're not going to buy, right? That is so much wasted time and energy mm -hmm. and frustration. And I've been in that situation, especially before I understood customer research. <laughs> and I guess I just want to save people from that. I don't want anyone else to have to go through that. And that's what, like, you know, there's a big difference between doing customer interviews and actually doing them well. And, you know, I suppose that's what we're going to chat a bit about today. When is the best time to do interviews? So I'm an advocate for doing them throughout the customer lifecycle from people who aren't customers yet, maybe even interviewing people who are customers of your competitors, not to try to steal them or, or sell them, but just to understand how they view the competitive landscape and maybe why they chose a competitor over you to people who have recently become customers, say, I usually say that's within the last month in Jobs to be Done literature, that's usually referred to as a switch interview, to people I call happy customers, which are people who've been customers for probably at least six months, but ideally more than a year. Also with people who have canceled in terms of the life cycle, but also you want to look at people in terms of different activities they're trying to do, right? Like if you have particular customers who are heavily using certain sets of features, and those are very valuable customers to the company. It can be really helpful to get them on the phone and understand what are they trying to do? How does this fit in? So you can maybe do more of that or attract more customers who are already well-suited to what you've built. And, and I think that's really one of the keys here that customer research helps you do. You know, as human beings, we are naturally biased toward 
the negative and trying to prevent negative mm-hmm. things from happening or to fix them if they have gone wrong. So yeah. <laughs> people are often very interested in doing churn interviews and, and in cancellation interviews. But honestly, I mean, cancellation interviews are interviews on hard mode. And I think they're only for, for people who've really done quite a few because there's so much emotion there. You can get so much good information out of people who have been a customer for years because it will help you find other customers that your business is already serving well. And it's so much more valuable to try to attract people who are already attracted to you and do more of Mm. that rather than trying to (laughs) turn a group that isn't using your product into one that is going to be happy like that. that I I have, I have tried to climb that mountain and it is hard (laughs) versus people who are already, you know, showing up on their own. You, you know, you just need to, you know, help them get there. Right. Like, so it can really, really, it can really help with those problems. And recruiting participants is probably one of the most challenging areas of all this, right? Yeah. And it really depends on on the size of the company too and how much resources you have to put into that. But even the smallest companies, they can find people to interview, whether within their, their customer base, simply emailing them. Oftentimes an incentive helps. Though you can find people on Twitter, on Reddit, which always surprises me, but you know, you can go on Reddit and find people talking about pretty much any products, enterprise software, even like pricing that's not public. Like you can find a lot of stuff on Reddit. And very often, if someone is frustrated enough to be talking about it on the internet, chances are they'll get on the phone with you. Yeah. But I mean, you know, with, with your customers, you know, I often find that, especially with long-term customers, can send out an email saying, hey, like have the chance to influence our roadmap. That's enough of an incentive. Even if they're not actually going to, you know, you're not going to build the exact feature they're asking for. Yeah. Just the opportunity to get that influence is, is helpful. And even if you do offer something like a, you know, say a 25 euro or dollar gift card to Amazon, for example, Mm -hmm. I find that long-term customers will usually reject it and they won't take it, Mm -hmm. but they will take some swag instead. Yes. And so I have (laughs) a lot of templates in the book, not only for how to conduct those interviews and scripts for them, but also templates for how to reach out to people, Reddit, LinkedIn, Twitter, email, because, you know, you just have to get out there and start asking people and... Mm -hmm. If you're solving a problem that people will care about, they will talk to you. And once you have the people to talk to, I suppose the question is how to talk to them. And I think this is an area that's, there's a lot more to it than people think. I mean, even on the podcast, you know, interviewing people, it's not just chatting. There's like preparation. There's little tricks to get people to open up and share. And so what are some of the key things people should know about the interviewing process? Yes. So it's not just the questions you ask, which I mentioned, I have scripts in the book for that so that you Mm -hmm. can edit and copy and make your own. It's how you ask those questions that really makes the difference between getting a a good, helpful result back and not getting a lot of information back. I spend a whole part of the book talking about how to talk so people will talk and how they will feel open with you. And that is using empathy to make them feel that they can be open with you. And it's everything from tone of voice to specific phrases that you use. So Mm. for example, there's a big difference between the three phrases that I'm about to say, even though they're they're almost the same. So I could say, why'd you come to the intercom homepage today? It's pretty neutral, pretty flat. Mm. I could say, why did you come to the intercom homepage today? It's a little bit curious, but it's kind of judgmental. Mm. And then there's a between, so tell me, why did you come to the intercom homepage today? Right. Massive difference. The last one is going to get so much more information out of someone because they are comfortable 
and they know that you're going to listen to them. And so these tactics range from using that soft tone of voice to not interrupting them to using what I call validating statements or therapists call this as well, negotiators. So for example, simply phrases like, that makes sense. And it's not a follow-up question, but someone will just keep talking because Mm. they're being validated. And that is showing empathy that you're showing that what they are doing makes sense. You're not saying that's correct or even I see your point, right? Because those are introducing your own perspective into it. I Mm -hmm. like to say that you want the other person to forget that you're a person who has opinions and perspectives because the entire interview has to be about their experience. Right. And so all of these tactics work together to help you get the most out of that interview, which is valuable time. And then you can use that across the business. And just on the the scripts that you mentioned, um, just to take like one example from your book on, say, a specific question, you know, maybe the one about kind of how to ask what someone, you know, would pay. Mm -hmm. I wonder, could you like talk us through that one a little just for an example? Yeah, this is a really challenging one because especially when you're building a new product, whether for an existing company or a new company, you really want to know how much somebody is going to pay for something. (laughs) And I think something that's, challenging when you're first starting to interview is recognizing that the literal question you want an answer to is not actually the question you can ask in order to get a good result back or a usable result back. So if I want to know how much somebody will pay for something, I can't actually ask them, how much would you pay? Because first of all, you're asking them to predict the future, which humans are notoriously bad at. If we were good at that, everyone would be in a millionaire in the stock market. So instead you ask about their existing behavior whether that's current or past. So instead you can ask, you know, about what their overall process is. For example, let's say that your product fills a need that they're currently using five products for. Okay, how much time are they spending on that? Because time is a cost. And then also how much money are they spending on it? And if they're spending a significant amount of time or money or ideally both on something, there's a good chance that they first experience that problem frequently and painfully, uh, which is actually a framework that I um, pull in from Des Trainer, co-founder of Intercom. Ah, and good to hear. <laughs> yes, very useful. And they're willing to switch products and they're willing to pay for something. So you can't say to someone, would you pay $10,000 a year for this product? But if you can add up that they're currently paying $15,000 a year for the five different products that your product would replace and you would save them 50% of the time, there's a good chance that they would pay for your product. Right. And so you ask about their actual behavior because if they're not currently spending time on it, they're not currently spending money on it, it's highly unlikely they're going to spend money on it. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know that episode two of Offscript, our new series of candid conversations with Intercom, all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing, is out now on YouTube. Here's a teaser featuring our chief product officer, Paul Adams, discussing AI-first customer service. The best place for me to start is that technology only moves in one direction. Once you go through these like before-after moments, you never go back. AI has clearly already shown us that it can help in transformational ways. It has given us a new way to do customer service. And that new way is AI first. The business that provides incredible customer service is the business that will win. 
And the earlier that people lean into this completely new mindset, the earlier they can deliver this incredible holy grail type of customer experience. It's a huge opportunity for businesses to literally change how people think about them. It's just a matter of time. That's all to come on episode two of Offscript. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel right now and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. So let's say we've done our interview and we have all our answers. What now? Yes. So this is the fun of analyzing <laughs> it, right? And this can take many different forms. And there, there actually there are a lot of other good books on this too. And one of the ways of doing that first is using that pain and frequency framework that Des Trainer has written about. I believe he calls it the size and frequency framework, though I like to combine it with something from Lean UX, so more of a pain and frequency. Right. It's basically of all of the different problems that you've heard about in the interview, which ones are the most painful and frequent ones? And then focusing on those ones. You can go out from there, for example, building journey maps, doing service mapping, there's a great book on service design I'm called Service Design, actually, on that. And this can take many different forms. If you're a small team, this might be just simply taking notes on it and passing them along. So when I do interviews these days, I actually just take notes in Intercom uh, combined with <laughs> records and tag my team members. And we all kind of review it and, and just kind of talk about it a little bit. But we all have a very strong sense of what are those jobs to be done that we're solving, where, where is new information. It might be putting it in a spreadsheet or an Airtable but I've even done things in larger companies where you're, you know, going wild with post-it notes on the wall and and really, you know, making those those maps out of, of the process. And, and it really depends on what you're trying to do. But then you can use it in many different places too. So you can use quotes from that, for example, with permission in your marketing, or you can simply use inspiration from it in other places. You can use it for context across other projects you, you might have going on. It's really up to you how much you use that resource. It's again, it, it, it's, it can be used in so many different ways. For sure. Just before we wrap up, do you think businesses are getting better at this? Yes, I, I, I would definitely say so. I think it really helps that there has been uh, a lot of attention, especially from, from the marketing side in the past, uh, I don't know, I want to say since, since the middle of the 80s, basically, mm. there, there has been increasing attention in understanding customers. You know, the concepts behind this actually started out in the 1930s. Uh, it's called activity theory. And that's basically a, a theory of how people interact with technology. So if you find this in academic writing, it'll be called activity theory. And that kind of, you know, sort of evolved as sort of the next generation almost of human-centered design, moving from thinking about specific humans and their context to actually activities right. that people are doing and the processes. Because you know, it doesn't matter that someone trying to, for example, pay their invoices faster is, you know, Susan, she's 45, she's single, she has a dog, because actually somebody who is 21 and in India at like, they might actually have the exact same process they're going through because they work at a similar size company with similar processes. Mm. And so it's that process that they're going through and the goals that they have and the activities that they're doing is the really important piece. And so activity theory basically bought, got sort of I don't know, uh, consultantified um, in the early <laughs> 2000s and it sort of made palatable to business people really through the work of Clayton Christensen, Bob Moesta. And so as more and more work has come out about jobs to be done, about activity theory, about applying it in business, I think you see more and more companies using it. And I think it's really 
I think you can really see that in, in, in companies now, you know, companies that came about after, you know, 2008, 2010 or so, you see a lot more of a focus on understanding the customers. So, you know, Intercom, Stripe, like all of these companies that are really the, the new breed of, of leaders in software and in business are very focused on it. But you also see, you know, businesses that have been around for a lot longer focusing on it as well. I think Intuit is the most famous example mm. of this. They've written quite a bit of, about how they use customer research. And I think the fact that we can do it remotely now really, really helps. It used to be that you had to pull together a customer panel of 20 people in a research facility. And, you know, speaking about the 90s here, like that was incredibly time-consuming and expensive and only huge companies had the ability to rent a research facility or fly researchers out to sit with customers um, at their desks or in their homes, for example. And now because of whether it's phone calls or screen sharing or uh, just, you know, the video meetings, right? It's so much easier to interview customers than it was even, even you know, 10, 15 years ago. Absolutely. Um, and you also just reminded me that we actually have a great podcast episode, one of our early ones where Des Trainer is interviewing Bob Moesta about job, jobs to be done. <laughs> so I'll put that in the show notes. But yeah, so just w- w- with you, like what's next? Do you have any kind of like big plans or projects coming up? Yeah, I think now I'm really excited to be able to take this on the road a bit. So uh, mm. I wrote the book during lockdown and wasn't really able to get out and talk to people in person about it. Yeah. You know, I I interviewed 30 of my readers throughout the course of writing it. You know, I wrote it as a newsletter at first. So I got a lot of feedback from people and have done a lot of virtual events about it. But I just got to go give talks about it at two different conferences in June, which was so much fun. I'll be at um, a couple of conferences this fall as well. And, you know, I just love talking to people about talking to people. And yes. <laughs> um, it's just so much fun when I get to go talk about that at a conference and then people come up to me and we talk about customer research and um, their challenges, their projects. That's just so much fun to me. Talking to people about talking to people is, is such a good tagline. <laughs> and Lassie, where can our listeners go to keep up with you, like on your work? Yes. So you can go to deployempathy.com to find links to the book and the newsletter as well, which I'm continuing to write occasionally. And you can also find me on Twitter at MJW Hansen, where I tweet about customer research and running a small SaaS and all sorts of other things. Brilliant. Well, Michelle, thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you so much for having me, Liam. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Michelle Hansen. Let us know your thoughts on interviewing customers. You can tweet us at Intercom or you'll find us on LinkedIn. Okay, that's it. I'll be back next week with another great episode. See you then. This is Inside Intercom.